Wednesday morning, and today we'll be talking with John about not doing what is right in your own eyes. It's uh, not exactly what you would expect in these libertarian days, is it? But it's actually uh, taken from Deuteronomy 13, uh, where God is telling the children of Israel, who have been incredibly successful despite all their woes, uh, how they are to organize themselves so that they uh, not only survive but flourish and are a gift to the world as a whole and that they have been uh, I mean they win the Nobel Prizes the real ones hands down every year uh, there's cultural reasons for this and what uh, God says in Deuteronomy 13 is you shall not do as you have been doing up till now what is right in your own eyes now you have to settle down and take my law seriously because that is the way in which you will flourish um, we don't think about these things the, the, the thing about the modern world is they don't want any history and that's a very silly approach to life uh, it's been upsetting me for a long while but it's only in the last little while I realized doctors are in a particular position to push back on this and call it the nonsense that it is. Um, when a patient comes to a doctor, I think what they should say is, do you wish me to affirm you in your current nostrums, your current ideas, your current feelings, or do you wish me to tell you what I think is wrong with you and what might be worth trying or what is worth trying? Um, which of those two you want because they don't actually fit together and of course when you're sick you don't want people to be you to be affirmed in your own uh, behavioral desires of the moment you want your physician to be guided by something bigger than that if I were a surgeon and I would say to the patient oh this week uh, I, I look upon myself as ambidextrous but my left hand needs a little more training than my right and this this week's a, a left hand week you don't mind do you of course <laughs> of course you mind uh, you don't think that the doctor should be allowed to indulge his current feelings he has a whole history which he should be loyal to and that's what you want from him so if you do wish to be affirmed go and find a counsellor doctors haven't got time because the administrators are on their backs all the while they only have a few minutes per patient before they start getting uh, notes from the administrator that they're not sufficiently productive uh, so you can't do counselling as a doctor we're too expensive um, because we have such overheads somebody without overheads should be counselling it used to be the church now the church instead of doing what it did well and starting from its own base uh, has allowed itself to be psychologized by the modern world and that's proving to be the disaster that it was always predictable it would be so um, people can begin by exploring this when they go to their own doctor by asking them some questions because you need to know things about your doctor um, when Hippocrates and his colleagues on the island of Kos some 2,500 years ago looked around on the medical scene as it was 
and they had very little in the way of effective treatment. Uh, but they wanted to make medicine better insofar as it was possible. And one of the things they realized is that trusting your doctor was therapeutic. Uh, you don't realize that until you're really sick. Uh, I knew about the phenomenon, but I didn't experience it until I woke up one morning, not too long after we got married, with an absolutely astoundingly painful headache. And I lay there for a moment thinking, what on earth is this? Uh, I've had migraine occasionally, but I think this is worse than this. And after a minute or two, I decided it, was, it lay in two categories. It was either an intracerebral bleed or it was meningitis. So I stuck my elbow into my wife and woke her up and said, take me to Harold Lambert, uh, who was the best physician in ID in London, and I'd worked for him, um, and I trusted him completely. Well, she took me, and we went through the process, and he said, well, you know, the next step is uh, we need to do a lumbar puncture. Now, um, normally when you're sane and sober, you would ask who's going to do it and how many have they done? I didn't. I said yes. And I realized that what I had done is I'd handed the whole thing over to Harold. I wanted him to take charge. That was an interesting phenomenon. That's what happens when you're really sick. You don't want to be worried about whether people are respecting your wokeness or your particular fantasies of any sort. You want somebody who's competent and ethical and trustworthy. And that doesn't come easy these days and it's going to be harder still in the near future. So, start asking your doctor about that. Now, what the Hippocratic physicians did was very interesting. Um, because they realized trust is so important, they saw a way forward that would improve medicine. They would stop killing patients. Killing patients is not a 21st century uh, phenomenon. Uh, this is something that has always happened all the way through, even when it was illegal. It still happens to some degree. Um, but in the past and in pagan societies, uh, the doctor who had some power to help you certainly had the capacity to kill you. They were good toxicologists. So doctors killed. Now, when someone dies, money changes hands, doesn't it? Estates change hands. Uh, a conflict of interest is huge. So what the Hippocratic physician said, we will tell everybody we're not going to do that. Now everybody knew going to the doctor was dangerous, and it didn't take them long to start voting with their feet as they realized these Hippocratic physicians were truthful to what they said they would do. And you are more likely to come away from your visit to the Hippocratic physician alive than with the others. Because there's always somebody who wants everybody else dead, uh, in their worst moments at least. So that's a huge change. Now, what the Hippocratic physicians also realized is that you need some base for all this. 
I usually put it this way when I'm talking to liberal medical audiences. Should I trust you rationally more or less if you believe in judgment after death? Now that's a no-brainer, isn't it? If somebody doesn't believe there's anything after death, you can't trust him as much as somebody who believes they'll give an account for everything they've done. So the Hippocratic physicians understood this. So the Hippocratic Oath, which was actually not a graduation oath, it was a, an introduction to medicine oath. If you didn't take it, they wouldn't teach you. Mm. And the very first thing is, I vow by Apollo, Hygieia, Panacea, Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses. Now, that was the only form of transcendence they knew, or thought they knew. But they took it seriously to a degree. Now, in our world, we are being asked to live without transcendence which is in fact being asked to, to live as though there is no God, which is an act of faith. The secularists are not rational above us. They have simply put rationality as they define it, as the top virtue, which it's not. In the most important book written on this over the last 50 years is undoubtedly Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, in which he argues that what the intellectual elite have done is make virtue impossible and rationally, and he's being proved to be right, steadily. Levels of trust are declining. Insurance of things that we didn't need to insure about before are now insured about. Just this week, uh, my wife came back as the first fresh uh, vegetables available at the farm stand down the road. Um, she went in to get some and then discovered that for the first time in 20 plus years there was now a box that was you couldn't get into into which you put your your money and later she discovered that the lady running the stand said well I was going to close because there was so much theft going on um, that's terrible I mean in the country people used to leave their food by the side of the road uh, unattended and nobody stole it. Now they steal it. That's not that's not progress. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in part because without that sense that there is going to be a weighing up of all our behaviours, a judgment, you have no reason to be good. You have only a reason to do what you're driven to do. The question is not what is good, but the utilitarian question, which I remember being introduced to very amusingly many, many years ago when I was teaching a, a Sunday morning Sunday school for Boys Brigade boys from the East End of London. They came to the Sunday school because they had to in order to get all the other activities. I used to take them climbing, for instance, and if they didn't come to the Sunday school, they didn't get the climbing. Um, and I asked the question, what's wrong with stealing? And quick as a flash, one of the smart kids said, getting caught, sir. Nothing wrong with stealing directly. What was wrong with this is you might get caught. That was the problem. The narcissism was already being bred. This was way back. This is the 60s I'm talking about, when it was all this chaos was beginning to grow dramatically. I mean, until the 60s, 
crime rates in every category had been declining from after the Second World War. Then in the 60s, it all took off. Read your Tom Soul to, to catch up with all that. So these Hippocratic physicians were pretty smart. Now, the next thing they, they put on the list is uh, uh, to teach students that medicine is a moral activity, not a technical one. You need to be technically competent, but the control lies in morality, knowing what you ought to do and being trained to do it. Hopefully you come from a family as I do where certain things were never done in our family. I only remember being uh, spanked once by my mother when I was quite small and I lied to her, you know, a childish lie, obviously a lie, and she was furious. And I was in bed at six o'clock, you know, with a red hot bottom. Um, so I, I learned from that experience that in this family, telling the truth is always uh, a good idea because punishment for everything else is significantly less. That's a great gift to give to a child, actually. Um, years later, uh, one of the papers that I've written that saved thousands of lives should have had her name on it because... It came about because I didn't like to pretend that there weren't outlying data in what I was doing that I didn't understand. And when I worked it through, it ended up solving a problem that nobody had solved in, known about the problem for 25 years. But the solution popped out of the fact that I looked at outlying data instead of using the statistics to scrub it clean. All this kind of thing is important. You see, when a patient comes to see a doctor, they don't have to take his advice. So what he's doing is helping people to decide what they ought to do. Now, ought is a moral word. You can't get your oughts from physical facts. Physical facts don't tell you what you ought to do. That comes from someplace else. This is transcendence again. You can't get justice from physical facts. You have to import ideas that didn't come from the physical world. Um, again, the Hippocratic physicians understood this. The second reason they needed transcendence. Then they took an absolute commitment to the sanctity of life because it increased trust. And what the, the, the pro-choice people don't realize is that by forcing it into medicine, they are diminishing trust in medicine overall, which is therapeutic. So there's a vast increase in cost due to pro-choice, which has got nothing to do with abortion or euthanasia, but simply to do with the degradation of the profession. Now, they don't think about these things. So uh, we need, uh, as doctors, we can push back. Uh, I need perhaps to push the ought and is just a little bit more. The easiest way to do it again is a medical version. I'll take you as my victim. Imagine uh, that you have cancer. And last week in my laboratory, I invented a cure for that cancer. Nobody knows about it yet. Ought I to give it to you? Now, the obvious human answer is yes. But what if I'm a Darwinist? a rational, well-thought-out Darwinist. And what if when you die, I inherit your estate and amazingly, you're very wealthy? Now what ought I to do as a Darwinist? 
I ought to keep my secret until I've collected your estate and then market it, which will take 10 years for a later uh, fortune. And there's no way around that. You shouldn't argue about Darwin over the physical world. That will sort itself out over time, as it is doing. But what is certainly true about Darwin is it cannot provide a moral structure for human society. Unfortunately for us as Christians, the best person to write about this is an atheistic Australian philosopher called David Stove, a book I've probably mentioned already because I mention it regularly called Darwinian Fairy Tales. Uh, very rational man, but he realized what I've been talking about very clearly and said he was furious when he saw Darwinists trying to pretend that they could get a moral system out of medicine by basically chicanery and he said I won't I won't tolerate this this is this is irrational and they don't philosophers don't won't argue with David Stove in print I mean he's dead now he died he committed suicide when he got cancer rational thing for a atheist to do it's lovely that an atheist should write the best book on why Darwin uh, can't provide you with a moral structure to your life so uh, the final thing that comes from this, of course, is that given you accept these three points, then you must give to me, the doctor, my rights of conscience, because you want me to be a man of rectitude, of his word. You cannot then make me do what is morally repugnant. And what comes out of this, of course, is that in our multicultural pluralistic world it's time that Christians in particular started pushing back as another minority group and we certainly ought to be running our own health system uh, and the secularists can run theirs uh, we will end up with all the difficult cases and the chronic care and all the rest but we'll be much cheaper because of trust the first experiments have been done and they work uh, the estimate is that uh, people who are deeply committed to uh, the Christian faith, uh, probably other faiths too, but I'm not sure about that, but certainly the Christian faith, uh, are costing on average, uh, or paying on average, 25% of what other people pay for health during their lifetime. It's a pretty big difference. So at the very least, we should be, as Christians, we should be getting in the Canadian state-funded system a charitable deduction for 75% of the healthcare costs, but of course we're not. I, I don't like being robbed. I'm very much in favor of charity, but charity should come with its recognition. And it's very straightforward. If you will keep these laws, you will flourish. There's a good example. Health is a good example. Uh, my father and mother, who lived uh, very uh, limited lives, they didn't have any higher education, the church was the centre of their life. My father spent, I think, 24 hours in hospital in the whole of his lifetime. My mother had two caesarean sections, but that was it. Um, we're cheap, in a good way. So, uh, all this leads into what happens when you get this wrong and COVID is where I would go next on this because uh, there's a lot of rubbish and uh, some good stuff being talked about what's going on but what has certainly happened is gross mismanagement and it's again because um, public health and epidemiology are not really medicine because medicine is a covenantal one-on-one -on -one relationship 
whereas epidemiology is a utilitarian activity, not controlled at all by morality but simply by outcomes. And the two don't fit together very well. In fact, they don't fit together at all. We have to recognize when we're doing the one or the other. I had to recognize that very clearly in, in the, the question of where I put my energy with respect to severely malnourished children. But the epidemiologists were only concerned about measurable outcomes. But we've already, in what we've said this morning already, it's very apparent that the outcomes that medicine produces in many cases are not measurable. And so the epidemiologists behave as they don't exist. So COVID has been grossly mismanaged by that failure. They've done their job. They, they were not malicious in any way. They're just limited. And you talk to any teacher or any physician in eMERGE or family practice and others, and they'll tell you, oh, it's been terrible, especially for high schoolers, but for everybody. In suicide is up, drug use is up. Um, you go along the list of things that are up, and there's a lot of them, and at least there's 15% of unaccounted deaths associated, associated with COVID and not caused by COVID. We're social beings. When you stop us being social, our lives fall apart. Now we're seeing the next uh, basis, the next result of this is that people don't want to return to work. I mean, my parent, my father had a job that was not fascinating. It, was a, it wasn't actually just watching a machine, it was checking whether the machine was working, but it, well, it was noisy, it was dirty, it wasn't highly paid, but he went to work every day uh, for his working lifetime. And during the war, of course, he was working because it was arms related in one degree, uh, six days a week, or five and a half. So I didn't see him at all from Monday till Friday because he'd gone before I got up and he wasn't back till I was asleep frequently. Uh, he came home at lunchtime on Saturday and I went off to help him on his allotment to grow vegetables uh, as a little boy. Um, on Sunday, that was church. The Sabbath was the Sabbath. We didn't work in any way. Um, now people don't want to go back to jobs which were... Um, not satisfying and they found ways of sneaking around and uh, the the underground economy will be growing dramatically and it's everybody's looking for workers they're not going to do well out of not working because again by the sweat of your brow you will earn your bread that's the promise of the Old Testament. And if you don't go that way, you, you're not a real human being. If you want to destroy a man, take his job away from him. Yeah, and the breakdown of marriage, of course, adds to this. Uh, women had fulfillment in raising a family and running a family that, in a way that a man can't have, uh, or a male can't have. Um, now, they're in the workforce. The children are suffering from that because mothers are irreplaceable. Um, we're making a lot of bad choices. Now, for the young that I'm concerned about, high schoolers, I've got several, a lot of uh, grandchildren in school at the moment. 
the Hoover Institute had a conference not long ago on the economic outcomes of COVID. And one of the things that surprised me, the OECD have done work, which they say means that those children who have been suffering from lockdown and distant learning uh, in their early education have already lost something approximating 5% of their total lifetime earnings. Because you see, you learn things that can't be measured when you go to school. Socialization. Uh, one of the problems with masks is language delay. If you can't see lips moving, you're bound to be slower in picking up a language. And they are. Um, we've, we've got a generation who will never totally recover from what we've done to them. Those two, three years, and uh, it's not over yet. There are lots of people who still want to go on doing it, especially, amazingly, older women. Um, data very badly presented. Uh, it, it is a, a bad situation. Um, hopefully it will get cleared up. I mean, there are good people out there who are uh, slowly working their way through everything and the truth will come out. But... Uh, uh, the people who got it right at the beginning of the epidemic, the, the so-called uh, Great Barrington Declaration of um, an epidemiologist from Stanford, another one from Harvard, and one from Oxford, uh, two Asians and a Swede, um, and they they said uh, this is a coronavirus. We know we know, we know and knew a lot about coronaviruses. There will not be a very good vaccine. The British tried for many years uh, and said it can't be done because most cold, many cold viruses are coronaviruses and they said you just got to live with it. Um, so they said what you should do is take the elderly and uh, those with serious disease and tell them to isolate themselves. Everybody else should carry on. Uh, schooling should carry on, no masking because you just want to let it rip and uh, Norway went one way. Sweden was the only country in the world to do it as they suggested. And of course, initially Sweden had some increased mortality, but now the figures are the same as everywhere else, except they had no masking, no lockdowns, no isolation. Sweden is going to go up in the world of intellectual activity because it hasn't killed a, a generation. It's a fascinating outcome, isn't it? Now, the last bit of what I want to say today is what can we do about this? And this is to set another uh, theme going which will be recurrent if there are people interested in this podcast over time. When things get bad, where do you go? Well, my suggestion is, even if you don't believe, the Psalms are the place to go. Poetry feeds your soul when things are bad. Uh, the good use of language. I mean... Churchill's speeches were worth several battalions, weren't they? Uh, because he could raise the hopes and the fortitude of the British, which he did brilliantly. But in the history of writing, the Psalms have a unique place. Uh, I try and read a Psalm every day. Uh, so that means I go through the Psalms. I mean, I don't read 119 in one go, but um, sometimes I'll read two psalms, say a column. But that means I go through the psalms twice a year um, if, I'm, if I keep up to my record. That means I, I know them quite well. 
And the important thing is to know where you need to go on a bad day, uh, where you need to go at various stages in your life, uh, to see how other people dealt with it. Now I'll just take one psalm today as a, as a, because it relates to the young people that I'm concerned about at the moment. Uh, psalm 73, beautiful psalm. Um, I call it the university student's psalm, but it's certainly the student's psalm. I think it's written in flashback by an old man, uh, and he's looking back on his life. And he opens by saying, as for me, my foot had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the wicked. Envy is driving our society. Black Lives Matter is envy-driven. You know, a lot of these things are driven by envy, uh, which is not a good motivator for anything because it leads to nastiness in the end. It doesn't lead to a good society. Um, so he, he looked around and already he's got people into the problem. Why did the evil prosper? Which they do, in the short term at least, until they get caught, so to speak. And we all get caught in the end, is the Judeo-Christian view of the world. So he talks about that. Uh, he can't make sense of it and he's about to do the angry teenager thing but he says if I said what I'd been thinking to those I love they would be destroyed by it he was actually stopped in his tracks by good manners uh, so you don't speak the truth in such a way as to, to make somebody angry and sad. I mean, we, yes, you need to speak the truth, not to when they need to know it is not good, but it has to be done politely. And that's why it's so, why manners matter so much. And you trace things that look a bit odd, and you can trace them back to some sort of uh, convenience for someone else way back or how to deal with a problem way back it sometimes takes time to dig it out for instance um, a good example would be that in Britain when you finished a meal uh, in a restaurant or at home uh, if your mother is like mine and like Sally you put your knife and fork together at four o'clock that tells any waiter that you have finished and you're in a good restaurant, your plate will disappear within two minutes. Uh, which means if you don't want to eat something but you don't want to offend the person who ordered it, you've only got two minutes and it's gone. Um, it's, it's a way of talking to the waiter. It also makes it very much easy to pick up plates if the knife and fork are all in the same place for everyone. In other words, that little gem of manners has very utilitarian backing to it. Uh, so manners mattered, and in this case he said, if I speak thus, I will be untrue to the generation of people who loved you, and he didn't want to be untrue to them. That's, that's the first of two turning points in the psalm. He still didn't know what to do with the problem, but he knew he needed to wait and think about it. And then he says, it was not until I went into the house of the Lord that I understood. Now, he went to the synagogue anyway, but at some point in our lives we go looking for meaning. That's the moment of truth when things really happen. And he said, then I understood. Their feet, the wicked, are in slippery places. But as for me, 
You, O Lord, are all that I need, and I know. And this is one of the first references to the idea of eternal life, that afterward you will take me to glory. It's a psalm worth knowing. And what I've done, I haven't, I haven't recited it. Uh, that's something you can do by memory. But what I've just done is to go through the psalm saying, why was the story told in this way? What, is it, what does it do to you? That's, that's another level of reading. Um, when you read the Psalms a lot, he comes to life uh, in that way. And you start almost intuitively learning ways of reacting uh, because these things get into your soul. I, I tease residents, you know, you don't believe in prophecy, but actually you're in the Psalms. And they look at me and say, no, we're not. I say, what is he? He goes like this. Um, I have become like a dried up old wineskin in the smoke. When will you punish those attendings who are punishing me? Now, I have, I have added one word, but I've not done anything to the psalm. Attending physicians who make the lives of residents miserable on many occasions. Psalm 86, verse 86 in Psalm 119, I think. But... Yeah, um, you're there. What you're going through, I mean, most doctors are not told, they should be, that you will go through weeks, months, or years being basically um, emotionally flat, uh, low levels of enjoyment, uh, not moving up and down very much at all. You come out the far end, you don't lose your faith, it simply doesn't seem important to you for a while and then it comes back I'm hopeful that we will see that more in the world as a whole that the the normal hole in the church that has been there since the 60s when people go to university and they don't go to church again for another 20 years then uh, the children are beginning to be very very problematic and they don't know what to do and that's one of the things that drives them back to church and the other problems of life come along Uh, The church's answers are not easy, but they're real. Thank you, John. Thank you guys all for listening. If you've enjoyed this, if you have questions for John, you can ask us that question by going to johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Again, that's johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys again, and tune in next week for the next talk.